Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we continue our series on the life of David. A couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 17 where we recounted David's epic battle with Goliath. And by the grace of God, David emerged victorious. And then in the first half of 1 Samuel 18, which we looked at last week, we saw two opposite responses on the part of Jonathan and his father, King Saul, toward David's success. Jonathan befriended David, whereas Saul, his father, the king, begrudged him. uh, Jonathan made a covenant with David, but Saul wanted to kill David. You might recount that he hurled his spear at him while David was playing the harp and David was able to escape not because David was especially deft at dodging spears, but because the Lord was watching over him. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 18 says, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Now over the next few chapters, the remainder of chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, David is going to pay a price for following the Lord. David is going to suffer many losses. In a short span of time, David will lose his position, his wife, his mentor, his friend, and even his own dignity. But through it all, God remains with David. The Lord continues to watch over David, even teaching David lessons in his losses. And the primary lesson that surfaces above all the other lessons through these episodes is that God has many ways of preserving His people. God has many ways of preserving His people. Do you remember what the great hymn writer John Newton declared in his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace? He said it by way of testimony, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What was true of David 3,000 years ago is true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today. We will go through many trials, afflictions uh, in life, but the Lord will be with us every step of the way, and God will guarantee to bring every child of His home. Amen. So let's walk through the remainder of 1 Samuel 18 in all of chapter 19, to see the various ways that God preserved David. And next week, we'll be continuing that same theme into chapter 20, which Pastor Mike will be preaching on. Number one, Saul tried to get the Philistines to kill David, but they were defeated by him. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along and even fill in the blanks. In the first episode, Saul tried to get the Philistines to kill David, but they were defeated by him. Look at 1 Samuel 18, verses 17 to 30. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, 
she was given to Adriel the Maholathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. No matter how hard Saul tries to do David in, David keeps coming out on top. In this case, Saul sends David on a mission that is supposed to result in his funeral, but it ends up with a wedding. David's marriage to Michael, Saul's daughter. Uh, David marries her despite Saul's malicious schemes against David. Remember, Saul's goal is to kill David. Saul wants the Philistines to do his dirty work so that Saul doesn't have to. As we made our way through the passage, did you catch some of the deception going on here? First of all, of Saul's deception toward David. Initially, he promises to give Merib, his daughter, to David in marriage. And this was supposed to be his reward for killing Goliath. Do you remember that from chapter 17? Whoever kills Goliath will get Saul's daughter in marriage. But Saul tacks on an additional condition. I want you to keep on fighting. And the reason Saul adds this condition is his goal is to get David killed. But notice how Saul frames this arrangement in verse 17. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Ah, David, you'll be doing a good service for me, your king, as you go and wage the Lord's battles. But as he says this to David, he's thinking, hey, why should I get my hands dirty? Let the Philistines kill him. Notice, too, Saul's deception toward himself. As Saul's speaking to David, he's thinking to himself, notice what he says, let not my hand be against him but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. As if Saul was any less culpable by scheming to guarantee the loss of David's life. That'd be like uh, some guy 
hiring an assassin to kill a family member and say, yeah, well, I don't want to be the one to kill him. That would be really bad. So I'll have somebody else do it instead. Now, even our law says, you know, you're no less culpable by scheming to do such a thing. And I thought, how many times, if we're not careful, can we be like Saul? How we can rationalize and justify our sin and make it sound less than it really is to maybe even put a certain label on it that is not biblical. And yes, Scripture tells us that essentially you can call sin whatever you want, but God still sees it for what it is. And more than that, God knows the intents of your heart. You know that song we sang earlier, All My Ways Are Known to You? That can be a very comforting truth, but it can also be a very convicting truth. God knows why you skipped church, the real reason you did. God knows why you really kept on watching that show. God knows why you really posted that picture or comment on Facebook. God knows why you really made that remark to so-and-so about so-and-so. God not only knows what we do, God knows why we do it. He is aware of every of the intentions and the motives of our heart. And that's why Scripture warns us not to be self-deceived. It's been said that rationalization is a friend of the conscience, but an enemy of the soul. You may appease your conscience initially, but if you keep on justifying and excusing your sins, slapping a different label on it than what the Lord does, if you keep on deceiving yourself, eventually you're going to destroy yourself. And that's exactly what happened to Saul as the narrative plays out. Saul broke his promise to David. When the time came for David to be married to Merib, Saul's daughter, Saul gave her to somebody else. Can you imagine if that happened to you? You're about to be married to the woman that's going to become your wife, and right before the time for you to be married, her father gives her away to someone else. What was Saul's intent in doing this? I believe that Saul, remember, wanting to get David killed, may have said, boy, if anything will produce resentment in David, this will, breaking a promise maybe even breaking his heart in the process. Perhaps David would do something rash, like say some treasonous words against the king, or maybe even lash out in a treasonous act. And, and upon doing that, he would be condemned to death, even by the law of the land. But Saul made a big mistake. He wrongfully assumed that David was like him. You see, Saul behaved rashly, but not David. In fact, Scripture says throughout chapter 18 that David behaved himself wisely. The Bible says this four times in chapter 18. Um, it is uh, translated where it says in the ESV that uh, David was successful in all his doings. Another way to translate that Hebrew expression, and the Hebrew word is sakal, is he behaved himself wisely. You see this in verses 5, 14, 15, and 30. And that's the way it's translated in the King James Version and the New King James Version. By seeing how this word, sakal, if you were to write it in English, it would look like S-A-K-A-L, sakal. If you looked at how this is used in other passages, we get an idea of what David is like. For instance, in Proverbs ten nineteen a verse that many of us know we read, when words are many, sin is not absent, 
but he who holds his tongue is wise. Sakal. So a Sakal person, a successful person in God's eyes, one who behaves himself wisely, is discerning and cautious in his speech. In Joshua 1.7, another verse that we all, most of us would know quite well, God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous and to be careful to do all that the Lord has commanded. And God says, do not deviate from them, his commands, turning either to the right or to the left, for then when you obey the commands, you will be successful, sakal, in all that you do. In other words, you will be successful in all that you do, or you will behave wisely. You will be, you will be doing the wise thing in all that you do. And that's what David did. He was wise when it came to his words. David was wise when it came to his actions. And therefore, he was successful. He prospered as a result. I thought of that old hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Are you trusting and obeying the Lord each day of your life? Are you walking with him? Saul later promised then to give Michael to David for the low bride price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. Talk about an awkward section of scripture to expound. It sounds weird and downright disgusting, but it makes sense if you think about it. Because if David goes out and brings back to King Saul a hundred Philistine foreskins, first of all, he'll know by the fact that they're foreskins, he did not go out and get them from dead Israelites because they were already circumcised. Furthermore, if he's to bring back a hundred uh, evidence of a hundred dead Philistines, a hundred foreskins is a lot easier to carry back than a hundred heads. And thirdly, Saul knows the Philistines ain't going to give up their foreskins without a fight. <laughs> Saul's banking on that. He wants David dead. So David ends up bringing back 200 Philistine foreskins. The text says that he gave them the full number of them to Saul. Like, I'm thinking, what was that like? One, two, three, four... <laughs> Oh, I missed one. Just, I don't know how it all played out. It's kind of weird. But he brought back double the number that Saul demanded because the Lord was with him. This time, Saul kept his promise. Michael ends up marrying David. And at the end of chapter 18, we're told, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So Saul tries to get David killed by the Philistines, but his plan backfires. Because David defeats the Philistines every time they come against him, and he only becomes more famous as a result. So in chapter 19, Saul moves on to plan B. Not just plan B, but plan B, C, D, and E. Saul unleashes a whole chain of deliberate plans to do David in. And in these experiences, 
David experiences a whole chain of deliverances by God who is watching out for him in all his ways. Number two, Saul tried to get Jonathan to kill David, but he delighted in him. Look at 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 to 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So now Saul is trying to get Jonathan and his servants to kill David. But as soon as Jonathan hears this plan, as soon as Saul discloses the plan to his son, Jonathan, instead of going to kill David, he actually goes and warns David. He tells him to hide himself until he can talk some sense into his father. And that's what Jonathan does. He, he goes back to his father and he says, don't commit this sin against your servant. He implores Saul not to do that because that's exactly what it would be. It would be murder because it would be killing David without cause, he says. He says, Father, David has done nothing wrong. The fact is, he has only done right by you. He risked his own life in order to kill the Philistine. And God ended up through that, bringing about a victory for all of Israel over all the Philistines. His deeds have brought good to you, Jonathan says. Then he says, Father, remember, you, you saw it and you rejoiced. In other words, you were happy about it then, so don't kill David now. And wouldn't you know, Saul listened to the voice of his son. He promised that David would not be put to death, and then David ends up returning. It says that he was in Saul's presence like before. And things lasted that way, at least for a little while. I wonder how many seemingly irresolvable issues could be worked out if we simply face them head on and talk them through. You know, Saul had already attempted to murder David. Saul, his son, heard him with his own ears encourage and, and, and plead with Jonathan to kill David. So he knew murder was in the heart of his father, and yet he still went to talk him down. I wonder how many situations we have been in where we thought, you know, so-and-so is impossible. Don't even bother talking to him or don't even bother talking to her. What seems to be an irresolvable situation 
could be resolved if we brought God into the conflict. Praying for him, uh, praying to him, using his word, checking our own heart. Jonathan courageously confronts his father, but he also does it respectfully. But he doesn't hold anything back. He calls it for what it is, a sin, if he were to do this against David. And then uh, Jonathan respectfully appeals to his father not to do this. And he reminds him of all the good David had done for him. And lo and behold, Saul actually listens to his son. The same Saul that had murder in his heart, that one time was just raving in his house and even threw a spear at David, this time he actually listened to his son. God used Jonathan's courage in that conversation to provide a temporary deliverance for David in the house of Saul. Matthew Henry wrote, We must be willing to hear reason and to take all reproofs and good advice, even from our inferiors, parents from their own children. How forcible are right words. Are we humble enough to receive them? Even if our own children were to call us to account? Or maybe someone who works for us? uh, We are their supervisor, but they call us to account? Jonathan courageously and respectfully confronted his father about his sin. And on this occasion, he listened to the voice of his son. But, as we will see, Saul's convictions soon wore off and his corruptions prevailed over them. And yet, God has many ways of preserving his people. Next, we see that Saul tried to kill David himself, but David dodged him. So, so far we've seen Saul try to get the Philistines to kill David, but he defeated them. Then Saul tried to get Jonathan to kill David, but he delighted in him. And now Saul tried to kill David himself, but David dodged him. Verses 8 to 10 of 1 Samuel 19. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. I thought, man, this is the second time. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. <laughs> I thought, I don't know who Jack is, but he's got nothing on David. He has an amazing ability to escape the spear. And yet, I think about how incredibly hard this would have been. I mean, they're sitting together, obviously in close proximity with each other. And I'm assuming that David is sitting while playing his instrument, his lyre, a harp-like instrument that he probably had on his lap as he strummed it. And, and Saul is sitting near him with a spear in his hand. Now remember, Saul himself is an accomplished warrior. Uh, He stood head and shoulders above every man in Israel. He is a strong man, and he hurls his spear at David in close proximity, and David once again escapes the spear of Saul. David escaped because the Lord was with him. God provided a way of escape. In this episode of deliverance, it's the second time that this has occurred, is significant 
Because from this point on, David will never serve in Saul's army again, not for Saul. At this point, he loses his position. He's forced to escape. He goes from being a commander to a fugitive. He goes from being an in-law to an outlaw. And this is where the real trouble begins. David would get no rest, but from this point on and for a very long time, he would be on the run because Saul was a determined man. Number four, Saul tried to use Michael, his other child, his other daughter, to kill David, but she delivered him. Verses 11 to 17 of 1 Samuel 19. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. And again, David wrote Psalm 59 during this episode of his life. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of the goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me and let my enemy go so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Scripture says that Saul wanted Michael to be a snare to David. But she was actually instrumental in saving him. When Saul sent men to David's house to watch him, to look for an opportunity to seize him so that Saul could kill him, Michael actually helped David to escape. Then she stalled for time by telling the men that David was sick in bed. And the men, thinking that Saul wouldn't want to kill him while he was sick, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense go back and tell Saul, well, he's sick in bed, so it may not be the best time to kill him right now. And, and Saul says, you know, go back to him, bring him bed and all to me, and I'll kill him. But when they go back, they discover that the dummy in the bed isn't the only dummy in the room. They've been fooled by Michael. When Saul confronted Michael saying, why have you deceived me and let my enemy escape? Michael lies to her father. She says, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help. And we know from the actual account that David said no such thing. Michael said that out of fear for her father. Michael lied. And I couldn't help notice the difference between the two siblings. Jonathan, the son of Saul, when he is directly told to kill David, confronts his father in love. He tells him the truth. In some ways, perhaps even risking his own life to do so. But his sister, Michael, lies to her father because she's obviously afraid of him. And I thought, you know, it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And it also says that Michael loved David. But they were two different kinds of love, weren't they? 
we see that Jonathan's love was a steadfast covenantal love, a love that could not be broken, whereas Michael's was a fickle kind of love. Perhaps it was because David was such a handsome man or had such a magnetic personality, but she was not devoted to him in a covenantal love. In fact, if you understand the story of Michael, we see that she was still overly influenced by her father. Because when he confronted her, what did she do? She distanced herself from David. And then she lied about things, which made Saul even more angry at David. I wonder how many marriages have ended in ruin because either the husband or the wife or both of them never learned to leave and cleave. Or once they began having children, it became all about the children. And they failed to make one another, their relationship as husband and wife, the number one relationship, human relationship of importance on earth. It's easy to let family influence the family that we're coming from, either the husband or the wife, or once we start having kids, for our marriage to take a back seat to other relationships that we have, sometimes even friendships. Let us be warned by the example of Michael. It's interesting that after this episode, even though God did use Michael to deliver David, the fact is, when she was confronted by the, her father, she distanced herself from David, she lied about what David had said. In fact, he had not told her, which made Saul even more enraged at David, separating them, further antagonizing that relationship. And even later on, when David gets Michael back, from this point on, they never live in harmony again. Their marriage is never what it could have been. And I believe that Scripture indicates that this was on Michael, not David. Husbands, wives, be warned by the example of Michael. Make sure that your marriage is the number one human relationship in your life. Second only of that to your relationship with the Lord. Number five. Saul tried to kill David again, but the Holy Spirit disabled him. By him, I mean Saul. I think I accidentally put David in brackets in your outline. That's wrong. Saul tried to kill David again, but the Holy Spirit disabled him, meaning he disabled Saul. Look at verses 18 to 24. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sikiu. 
And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth at Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Another semi-weird episode. But let's catch the gist of what's happening. Uh, David, upon fleeing his home, goes to Samuel's hometown in Ramah, where he seeks out the prophet. That's about seven miles from Gibeah, which is the home of King Saul. David tells Samuel everything that has happened up to this point. And so Samuel rightfully protects David. The text says that they went and lived at Nioth. That place is mentioned only here in 1 Samuel 19. And it literally means dwellings. It was here apparently that Samuel led and mentored the community of prophets. In this region, archaeologists have found ancient remains of houses that are built back to back, side by side, top to bottom in a maze-like arrangement. Uh, kind of what we might call an ancient version of our condominiums in our day. When Saul got word about where they were, he sent troops to capture David. But when they got there and saw Samuel leading the prophets, they began to prophesy too. Saul sends a second group of troops, they began prophesying. Saul sends third group of troops, they began prophesying. So Saul finally goes himself. Verse 22 says, Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikiu. Again, this is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, but it's related to the Hebrew word meaning to look out. So the idea is that Sikiu would have been on the outskirts of Ramah, a, a place of high elevation where the sentries could keep watch over any enemies that might have been coming their way uh, as they guarded Ramah. So Saul arrives at CQ and says, where are Samuel and David? Now remember, he's the king, and when the king asks a question, you give him an answer. So they said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul made his way there. The Spirit of God comes upon him also, and, and he prophesies on his way to Nioth. Once he gets there, he then strips off his clothes and prophesies before Samuel lying before Samuel, naked, for a full day and night. Now you might remember last week when we studied the first half of 1 Samuel 18, in that first section, remember Jonathan makes a covenant with David and Jonathan voluntarily strips off his robe. It's the same word that's used here at the end of 1 Samuel 19. Uh, uh, he strips off his robes and gives it to David to symbolize that he is willingly, joyfully yielding the throne to David as God's anointed one. And here Saul is now doing the same thing involuntarily. Saul doesn't want to give David the throne, but the Holy Spirit overcomes Saul and he strips himself of his royal garments, thus indicating that he has forfeited the kingdom to David. I find it interesting that he did this before Samuel. 
Remember, it was Samuel that said, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you and has sought out a man after his own heart. It was Samuel that anointed David, king of Israel. And so in some sense, I believe the Lord is vindicating the ministry of Samuel as Saul the king now lies before him, stripped of his royal robes as the spirit of God overcomes him. And the point is this. Saul, even as the king, is powerless to thwart God's sovereign purposes. Here we have five episodes of deliverance in just a chapter and a half. At the beginning of Psalm 59, David prayed, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. David wrote this prayer when he was in the thick of these plots to kill him, specifically when Saul had sent men to guard his house who were prowling around like dogs. God heard David's prayer on that occasion, and time and time again, God answered his servant. So that by the end of the psalm, David's plea turns to praise. Do you remember what he says to the Lord? O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David says this in the midst of all these horrible circumstances, as the Lord delivers him time and time again. It's important for us to understand this in light of the whole counsel of God, the whole record of Scripture. Because David's experience, his deliverance as God's anointed king foreshadowed the ultimate deliverance by the ultimate king, David's descendant in the flesh, Jesus. Hebrews 5, 7 says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You say, but wait a second, Jesus died. Yes, but in his dying, Jesus defeated death. Because what happened on the third day? He arose. We sing about that. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Death did not defeat Jesus. Jesus defeated death. And God, the Father, enabled His Son to overcome death. In fact, Jesus Himself says, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was not possible for that cup to pass if Christ were to save sinners like us. So the Lord saved his son from death, not sparing him the agony of the cross, but angels came and strengthened him to make it through the agonies of the cross and come victorious on the other side. That's why we're told In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author, having told us this in chapter 5, continuing his sermon to us, goes on to say in chapter 12, 1 and 2, Let us, therefore, run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do this? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. 
Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. The message of scripture is if we suffer as he suffered, if we suffer with him, we will by God's grace, it's guaranteed, we will reign with him forever and ever. So we don't look to Jesus at like, and, and a mere example, like we might look at some past dead hero. Because Jesus is alive right now. And Jesus is reigning at God's right hand. And Jesus will empower all his people to persevere through all the struggles of life so that we, like David, in the end will be delivered. And we shall reign forever and ever. Think of it this way. It says, let us Run with endurance. We have believers scattered throughout the sanctuary here. And we're reminded that we run together. But Jesus ran alone. Because he alone could accomplish what none of us could. The salvation of our souls. I wonder if you have repented of your sin. And put your trust in Jesus Christ. God has many ways of delivering his people. God has many ways of preserving his people, practically speaking. But here's the thing. All of these ways that God acts providentially to deliver, protect, and preserve his people are found in the only one way there is. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God's promise to preserve His people is guaranteed only to His people. You must be in Christ for you to be safe. Otherwise, you will not overcome death, but death and destruction will overcome you. And justly so, because you have refused Him who speaks to you through His Word, calling you to trust in Him. So that's a warning. And it's also a promise. If you reject God's Son, if you try to get to God and you try to make it on your own some other way, you are doomed to eternal hellfire. And rightly so. But despite all your sins against God, if you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, the Bible says that you by faith, as a result of God's grace, are accepted in the Beloved. And once you are in, once you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, you are protected, you are preserved forever and ever. It doesn't mean that you won't go through trials. It doesn't mean that you won't experience hardships and heartache. But it means that you will come through victorious on the other side. Because God watches over his own. The Lord will be with us even in our losses, each step of the way. Think about this. With all these deliverances, David suffered a lot of loss. He lost his position. He lost his wife. He lost his mentor. He lost his friend. And as we will see next week, he even lost his own dignity. But the Lord was with him each step of the way. And the Lord taught David some incredible lessons in the midst of his losses. Last Sunday, we prayed for Sanibel Community Church, which was absolutely devastated by Hurricane Ian. 
And so was the home of the church's pastor, my longtime friend, Jeremy Rennie. Earlier this week, in a letter to his congregation, Jeremy wrote this. This is a portion of his letter. As I reflected on my own losses, I realized that's where our church is right now. God has stripped SCC naked. We're in the mud. We've lost so much. We don't have very much at all to offer the world. We can't offer a beautiful causeway to drive on Sunday morning or a cheery island campus. We don't have a portfolio of programs and activities. One hurricane changed everything. Today, our church only has three things. We have the word of God and the gospel it proclaims. We have prayer and we have one another. And in, and in these three things, we have Jesus. Sunday night was our first worship gathering since the hurricane. Our assembly had a fresh authenticity, intensity, and simplicity. You could hear the faith and the singing and praying, and you could feel the love as people lingered long afterwards to talk and to hug. We had God's word, we had prayer, and we had one another, and that was enough. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with us to the end. Let's pray. Father, encourage the hearts of your people today. Because every single one of us to one degree or another have suffered or are suffering or will suffer hardship, heartache, trials, and loss. But Lord, we thank you that you are with us each step of the way. So help us to fix our eyes on you, knowing that by your grace, we will, like David, emerge victorious. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.